0: This is Someone Like Me, the official podcast of End Slavery, Tennessee. Through the telling of their stories, this show empowers survivors of domestic human trafficking and educates listeners on what's really happening in their own backyards. I'm Leslie, your host, and today's conversation introduces a male voice to the show. I get to turn the microphone over to our producer and editor, Gregory Byerline as he dives into the world of demand for this crime and the thing they call the, quote, John School. Gregory, I'll let you take it from here.
1: Thanks, Leslie. Men can be part of the solution instead of part of the problem, and men should be part of the solution. This podcast was born from my own desire to ding the universe on a deep level and make the world a better place for my children and for everyone who's affected by what's happening in the world. In that spirit, we bring a male perspective to the table with A.T. Branch, a volunteer for End Slavery Tennessee at what's called the John School. Joining us on this episode, as always, is our honorable founder, Derry Smith. Would you kick it off by telling us a bit about John School?
2: Sure, Gregory. The John School is a day-long session of classes for men arrested for the first time for soliciting prostitutes. It's run by our friends at Thistle Farms, and they invite End Slavery Tennessee in to lead the session on human trafficking. And how the choice to buy sex feeds the demand that fuels human trafficking.
1: Listeners, keep in mind that this conversation discusses sexual matters and is not appropriate for children. Here we go.
2: It's so good to have you with us today, A.T. I think we first met a few years back when you started to volunteer with End Slavery Tennessee. Would you please tell us how you first engaged with our agency and the ways you volunteered with us?
3: Sure. Um, I can't re- remember exactly how I was connected with Stacey Elliott, but shortly after I was, she invited me to a fundraiser for Thistle Farms that December. Um, I went, and as one would expect, I was immediately moved by her passion. She, as you know, was full of life and very infectious. Um, anyhow, I, I've been searching for a way to locally support the fight against human trafficking, and she invited me to attend the um, in Slavery Brentwood group, where she's the leader at the time. So I took the leader, or part of me, I took the volunteer training. Then after I say the six months, I was ready to represent. I mostly manned booths at the events if requested, sponsored a survivor for a while as well, then. I remember Jill asked me to speak at the John School as a rep- representative of slavery prior to my hiatus.
2: Thank you. Would you please summarize for us in two or three points what you taught during the slavery section of the John School and share with us the insights you gained at the John School and other venues about men who buy sex?
3: Sure. I, of course, explained how the average age of trafficked girls was 13. Harping on point of minors. We discuss several factors about how these young girls and women are lured or forced into this predicament. As I feel like a lot of people assume this is voluntary, which kinda of puzzles me because if we know that any adult has sex with a minor, it's statutory rape. So nothing about rape suggests a voluntary or able to or ability to consent. We went into some detail about transportation rings of these girls and women around like highway routes in the Southeast, although we know that's not us isolated to the Southeast. Um, and then we discussed the use of the internet and how like most things, it made it easier for access. And so you, these young ladies that were being trafficked will be presented as desiring companionship and being age appropriate when we know that neither of those things are true. As far as insights I gained, I don't know if you've ever watched a show, How to Catch a Predator, but admittedly, I I expected everyone at the John School to look like someone from that show, but <laughs> I very quickly learned that solicitation has no clear look. Um, there were men of all races and varying age from twenty to sixty-five or so, but I I didn't I don't want to suggest that I went in there looking down on anyone. I you know, I explained that I had my own battles with lust and I sent my own ways hoping, you know, that would lead to more of a discussion, which did. During my presentation, I heard things such as, well, if you didn't have websites like Backpage and I wouldn't have had access or I was innocent, I just was going to get a massage. I was nude, but I didn't do anything or plan anything or um, another experience where a man came up to me and saw our poster and just was like, "Well, what about the women that want to do this?" So, while you definitely felt the remorse and embarrassment of several of them in there, there was still this kind of sense of they gotten caught and it was someone else's fault. So I'll say that any time you get to sit during a talk with Tammy Mead will definitely set you straight. I really hope that she and some of the other speakers left an enduring impact on those that didn't quite seem to get it.
1: It sounds like these Johns go through a period of blame shifting when they talk about, well, if they weren't putting themselves out there or if they weren't available, then I wouldn't have done this. That sounds like classic blame shifting to me. How does the John School address that?
3: Well, there are several speakers and that's one of the cool things about being a part of it was that it wasn't just a burden on me to present things like so I think in slavery comes in from the perspective of education and details and awareness but you also had Tammy Mead and I believe she's from the district attorney office and you had gentlemen that were coming in and talk from an, a sex addict reparation group, or I don't know the proper term, but they were sex addict recovery group, pardon. Um, you had people that were coming from the health and clinical perspective, and you also had a woman who was formerly trafficked come and speak about her experience. And I think when you pair all of those together, you get a bigger picture. You know, when when someone, from what I understand, purchased sex, I think it is very much individual very much self-centered and internal and each of us helped create a picture of okay not only are these illegal ramifications of your decision these are this is why it's a legal ramification and this is this is how you're impacting someone's life it's not just your life or your family's that is impacted if you're found out for soliciting this it's like here is a young woman or maybe not even a young woman, but in majority of the cases here is in this predicament because of force or fraud or coercion or being coached into this, I don't even like to say lifestyle, but this life. And you are further exacerbating the problem. And so when you hear that from the perspective of an attorney, when you hear that from a perspective of someone going through it when you hear that from the perspective of a, another male that is wanting to help you understand those details and then you hear that even most hard-hitting from men that were former johns and acknowledge how difficult it was for them to accept that truth but how they've been redeemed or how they've worked in a community of brothers to help them battle or deal with that battle i think it just was a a more holistic approach and it was never really a finger pointing thing it was just hey let let me help you understand why this is wrong because in a lot of cases if you were there in the first place you probably didn't think it was a problem to begin with and so i think each of us tried to help paint that picture more holistically
2: I remember, Andrew, you telling me some stories of the rationalizations that some of the men made for their actions. Do you recall any of those that you can share with us?
3: I think, you know, some of those, like previous mentioned, like one of them, fortunately, we've in TBI and in and several other organizations worked really hard to get back page taken down. But one of the excuses or rationalizations was the access, you know, if if it wouldn't have been presented as an option I wouldn't have pursued it if that makes sense another was she wanted to do it or she was into it and I I didn't force anyone to do something that they didn't want to do which we also understand just from spending time in slavery and you know your own research and other things that have been told to me that that just is so contrary to what we understand after interacting with survivors this isn't a career path or a a job that any woman seeks after we 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 definitely learn that women are coerced and coached and worse to pursue this path. I mean those are the two of the big ones access and then that it was it's voluntary
2: do you remember any aha moments when maybe one of the men had that light bulb go off and and recognized the truth?
3: Well, first one was, when we explained that the average age of young girls being trafficked was 13, and you could tell that there were probably fathers and uncles in that group. I think there was kind of a a hush over that, and then you did have some questions about how that could happen and so on and so forth, but I don't think people realize the gravity of that. And... How that could have been anyone related to us, whether it be by force or, you know, we talking about, you know, young ladies that run away from troubling situations only to find themselves in even worse ones. I think one of the other things that stood out was or a aha moment was when after one of the gentlemen who asked about it being voluntary, going into the detail about expressing how when... I watch a documentary about human trafficking and even in women in one of the most glamorized brothels, you know, they were told that they could come and go as they please. They could be told that they could be treated well. All of them there had mentioned that they had a predisposition or experienced sexual abuse prior to that experience. So further reiterating the point that no one chooses this. No one wakes up and decides this is the path that I want to take. And so... Just kind of helping several of them, at least that seemed curious enough, to know how this could happen was, it was a mutually beneficial discussion, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and you mentioned that the average age of the trafficked minors is 13. And average is somewhere in the middle, which means there are even younger than 13. Listeners hone in on that. 13 is an average so there could be younger. It's easier to grasp a 16, 17, 18-year-old looking like a 16, 17, 18-year-old, or perhaps even a 21-year-old, a major instead of a minor. But what is not easy to grasp is someone younger than 13 that would bring that average to 13. There is no way that they can look old enough to go into this of their choosing or even be world enough to know that this lifestyle or this activity exists that's really troublesome to me
2: yeah i would add to that that first of all 13 is the average age of entry into human trafficking and that we recognize this in so many other realms we don't let 12-year-olds get married, we don't give them the responsibility for even sitting next to the emergency exit on an airplane. We know they are not developmentally ready to make those kinds of decisions or have to make the kind of choices that are necessitated in those roles. So, and as AT said, these children and young people are not even of an age to consent to having sex. So when you have a young person who even thinks it was their idea to go and sleep with multiple men every day, you know that there is an adult behind that who is manipulating and exploiting that child.
1: And I'm going to double down on someone entering at that age. No matter how you slice it, does not look old enough to consent. Whether they are or not, they just don't look that way. And I would love to be a... Fly on the wall in one of those John School sessions for that aha moment when fathers and uncles, when that average age is delivered, and these fathers and or uncles probably have daughters or nieces. That would be a massive aha moment. I would hope that would be a massive aha moment. Yeah, I mean, and I, I argue too that I mean, you don't.
3: I don't think you should even have to be in that that role of a parent or an uncle to have to feel that way. But I definitely think that further challenges a lot of
1: people's perspective. AT, could you talk about what understanding you've gained into how they see it's an okay thing? Like what's their hurt? You know, we have this adage of hurt people, hurt people. So what, what did they reveal as their catalyst or what is their hurt? What did they discuss?
3: So, I I kind of alluded to some of these previously because I I just have a habit of <laughs> answering multiple things at one time, <laughs> <laughs> but I I think one of the biggest that we addressed was that it was voluntary, that the person being trafficked is doing a job, and that's just that's just not true, you know, just the idea of so many people having experienced sexual abuse prior to being trafficked or being coached by someone who thought was pre- that loved them and so doing this out of feeling that that was an expression of love or force or coercion and so on and so forth and then one of the thoughts was if if they didn't want to do it why didn't they just leave which i think is foolishly unaware of the psychological warfare that's been waged against these women in the first place And it's also unaware of the lack of legal support and infrastructure for several people to start their life over if they do escape a trafficker. And, you know, one of the things Derry and several other people in slavery helped me understand is, like, we're super grateful for the things legally, particularly that Tennessee's doing, to aid with that. But we know that this is still a problem countrywide that, while we may be one central region of one state, um, there's just so much more to be done.
1: From a John's perspective, did they indicate anything that would shed light on what their hurt was that would then cause them to buy and sub- subsequently hurt one of the trafficked girls? Like, how are the Johns hurt?
3: I can't personally speculate on that because it wasn't... Or I shouldn't say I can't speculate. I have thoughts. (laughs) But nothing was particularly articulated to me. So I, when I thought about this, I had to do some personal soul-searching and then some observations. So I prefaced my response by saying I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not an anthropologist, but I do make observations. And I think there's some... Key factors at play from my view. I think there's one, um, a societal non egalitarian view of women. I think there's what I like to call transactional entitlement. And then there's just status pride. So, you know, for a while I didn't really understand why this was an issue. You know, my dad taught me the fundamentals of being a gentleman, and that was never accompanied with this idea that women aren't equals. And then you know, I got in the army. I took a service industry job, and admittedly had to refrain from headbutting people a few times. Um, but I think <laughs> I think that's partially once a, once because, a soldier, always a soldier. Right? Uh, you know, I'm, I've gotten so much better. But <laughs> I I think it's part of because the, I'm a people person. And I wanted to do my job well. Access is my love language, and some people were really nasty. And I think part of that is because they had the idea that since they were paying for a service, they could deal with me any way that they wanted. And in several cases, I was just a face and a means to their entertainment or end. So now don't get me wrong. I didn't get into that job to be everyone's best friend, but I did expect to be treated like a person or a human simply because I am one, you know, and some people for whatever reason, whether they're at a bar, a restaurant, you name it, they they forget that. And should you vent or complain about it, they're like, uh, you should do a different job. And then there's the pride factor. So sexual struggles are not typical talk amongst men, particularly if you're viewed as like, an upstanding citizen. You can't people let, let people know your marriage is facing challenges or you don't want your buddies to know you're dealing with insatiable lust or you're feeling out of control and you need to get control back somehow. So I'm not saying those scenarios lead to trafficking per se, but I'm aware that inability to discuss and process those battles can often lead people to like darkness and isolation, and they do things counter to what might suggest is their upbringing. So I relate that all the way back to your point about a uh, John. So I'll just use an example. John is frustrated with work at home or simply wants to reward himself. And he doesn't want to confide in his significant other because allegedly they won't understand won't tell his neighbors or close friends because if they know they'll judge him and so he'll be ruined. He has a desire. He has the means to pay for said desire to be met based upon what traffic person's published value is, which we know if we start with dollar signs on people, we've already really screwed up. Traffic person is there to provide a service that John wants. John pays for it. He feels entitled to it and he either doesn't know or doesn't care about traffic person's personal life and we know, just in society, one of the things we're working to combat is that this person isn't the point of being trafficked. They're not just a sex worker. And if they were, like, this isn't just a choice. And so society views sex workers as like the lowest of low. And then, but we we don't like when a person's pursuing this, they're not thinking about the nuance of this isn't a person that's just a, a sex worker. They're trafficked. They are not there by choice. And so. John just cares about his escape and his entertainment. So since he's paying, he doesn't expect that person to complain. And if you don't like it, you should find another job. I mean, there are just so many things that could go into that. And so I think there's a significant issue with that view and argument. One, the perception that a woman's body is a commodity and can be purchased for own gratification. The perception that a woman is voluntarily doing this instead of the truth that she's likely there due to fraud, force, coercion, and we'd have no idea what predisposition said woman has had to sexual abuse. So I could go on. and I don't think we have enough time, but like I said, I, I didn't get to actually talk to a lot of men, particularly about why they made the choice. I think some were pretty afraid to address that directly, but as I tried to like listen to things that were said and piece pieces together from my own experience, those were three of the things that I felt like made the most sense to me.
2: So let me go on and ask you this. You chose to volunteer in what is too often considered a woman's issue. Why do you think it's important for men to engage in counter-human trafficking efforts?
3: Oh boy, I love this question. (laughs) Well, I think it's simply the easiest answer is because it's the right thing to do. Um, But I also, I don't think any person's body mind or soul should ever have to endure what a traffic woman has to go through I don't particularly think it's brave or I should get a gold star for wanting to partner with a woman in this fight I don't I don't think it's something to pity like to to pity survivors because I think they're resilient and strong women and men that need our support and resources but awareness matters donations matters and I think it goes without saying men typically hear things better from other men. So the more brothers we have out there spreading the truth to combat myths and perceptions, then that means the more that men can hear it. And I think it, it starts with the little things that don't directly correlate with traffic, like speaking up. When the guy that's getting too handsy or creepy at the bar, speaking up when male coworkers are condescendingly discussing a female coworker's body, or teaching our brothers and our cousins and our nephews about consent, and of course, you know the horrors of trafficking. I think, also, just as a man of faith myself, you know, there's this unfortunate challenge with discussing sex and sexuality in the church, and I think as we see as more church communities. Get involved with supporting this mission. It's super important for the men of the church and society at large, but baby steps, to have candid conversations with their peers and young men about sex and sexual temptation and the value of women dealing with rejection and you know how society promotes sex as like this rite of passage. I mean, I just read about this rapper a couple of weeks ago who ordered oral sex for his thirteen year old son. And who, who thinks that's okay? Like, no, uh, sex isn't dirty or gross or nasty, but it's a gift. And it's not something that's owed to you or a method to exert dominance on another person. And I think we men owe that to our communities, not just the women around us, but to our own communities to be a part of that. Um, I think women shouldn't have to be our police. We need to be our own.
2: Great insights. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered at
3: just the idea of the notion that boys will be boys is not an acceptable behavior to continue to promote you know i think there is a value to our masculine and feminine balances but i think you know each of us have a certain amount of one or the other and I just know, you know, sometimes I see horse playing out in public and it's like, oh, boys just being boys. And I've, I won't have bowed to myself and to the people I care about to speak up more because most of my friends are not that I know of soliciting traffic persons, but it's small things that we do in society and as as men that it's small behaviors that exacerbate to getting away are worse ones, whether it be, you know, a sense of entitlement or expectation, or if we start doing the smaller things, that the bigger things are are less likely to be perceived as okay, because the smaller things weren't. And we teach each other just how to be better as citizens, for lack of a better words. So.
1: Well, it sounds like what you're describing is just the need for men just to be better human beings. Yes find a way within masculinity to still be a human being and not just a dude be a man to be a human not just someone who's big wild conqueror get whatever you want at at any price but to be a human being it's kind of golden ruleish sure you know what would, would these fellas want done to them what they are doing to the people that they buy.
2: One thing I hear is that we need men to be an example of what real manhood is and to change that concept in our culture.
3: 100%.
2: So you men who are listening and want to engage in this fight, like A.T., please go to our website, EndSlaveryTN.org, and click on Take Action.
1: We're so grateful for this perspective from A.T., and we wanted to share some more clarity about this topic before wrapping up. Derry?
2: It was mentioned that 13 is the average age of entry into sex trafficking. This is a widely used statistic, but there is some controversy about its accuracy. In Tennessee, we find the age to be closer to 15 with the limited data we have. And Gregory is right in pointing out that an average age means that there are younger victims. Also, this session has focused primarily on female victims and male exploiters. While those demographics are in the majority, it's important to note that boys and men are human trafficking victims also, and women sometimes exploit and traffic. As always, we want to thank the Jones Legacy
0: Group for their ongoing support and exclusive sponsorship of this first season of Someone Like Me. Our executive producer is Derry Smith. Producer and editor is Gregory Byerline, and the music is by Kurt Gobel. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please tell a friend and subscribe on your platform of choice so you never miss an episode. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thank you for listening.